Did I, did I screw this up right off the bat? Am I good? Okay, all right. All right, let's try that one more time. Good morning. How's everybody doing? It is once again a pleasure to be here. Um, I am once again uh, nervous. This auditorium makes me nervous. This group of people make me nervous. And uh, if I say something weird, it's because you guys make me nervous. All right? I am not as... I am not the weird rage monster some of you think that I am. I, I'm actually fairly nice and normal. Um, it's just the atmosphere here. I'm so intimidated, but uh, it's awesome to be here. I, I'm here often enough. I kind of feel like I'm, I may be as here as some, as often as some church members may come here. You know, like the really bad ones. <laughs> I feel like I'm a part-time bad church member of FBC. Uh, but uh, we are so blessed uh, with everything this church has done for us and especially going through what we went through with Connor and the fact that he's here again is just amazing and uh, we thank you guys for that. <clears throat> All right, Jeff said I have until the, the mid-afternoon, so just take my time. Uh, we're going we're gonna to ease our way into this. Uh, I have never actually spoken at a missions conference before, and uh, I had a conversation with Jeff, and I, it really challenged me. Uh, he wanted me to say some very specific things, and I felt like the Lord gave me something today, so I'll try and do the best that I can. We're going to talk about what is your life. What is your life? And we're going to open up by reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. <clears throat> According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might shew forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Brothers and sisters, if the Bible is to be believed, which of course it is, then Paul's life is to be a pattern for every one of our lives. Note I did not say for the ultra-pious, nor for pastors, nor for quote-unquote missionaries. A term, by the way, never once used in Scripture. Rather, Paul told us in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16 that his life was to be a pattern for everyone who was saved. And you know, I really began to look at that this week and I realized something. There's no point in having a missions conference to an audience who either does not realize that or upon hearing it won't make making that a reality seriously. And according to our text, here is the pattern of his life and ministry that every one of us should be reproducing. It is this. Being found in Christ, Paul's most off-term our off-use term for describing somebody who has been saved. 
who has been translated by faith alone and the gospel alone from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. His term for that is in Christ. Being found in Christ gave Paul a perspective of his past which shaped a predilection of his present that positioned him for his future. Now I'll say that once again because we don't have fill in the blanks and dittos and overlays and overheads and whatever you call them today, I don't know. I still, I still call them overheads and dittos, whatever. Uh, and that's because I got all of my sermon material in late and gave nobody any time to make anything cool. So it's actually my fault. So I'll say it once again. Being found in Christ gave Paul a perspective of his past which shaped a predilection of his present that positioned him for his future. Now, what was his past? Well, he just said in our text, his past was that he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church. He was injurious, actually posing a physical threat, a torturer of people who named the name of Christ and claimed to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he did. And so Paul said, when I think about my sins, I consider myself to be the chiefest of sinners. Now, we just read that that is supposed to be a pattern for our lives. That should be your opinion of yourself. When you look back at your sins, you ought to think to yourself, there's not a bigger scumbag on this planet than I am. We ought to think to ourselves that, because if we don't think that, if that's not our opinion of ourselves, if we don't consider ourselves complicit in the murder of Jesus Christ through our sins, then we're not going to have the future that we're supposed to have. Because that negative reality is supposed to do something in our lives. And I think sometimes we forget, because we read so many Christian books written by so many ambiguously heterosexual, quote-unquote, Christian pastors and authors telling us how good we are and how neato we are and how we're not that bad. You are that bad. We are that bad. I'll tell you how bad I am. I am so bad that if you knew everything there was to know about me, you wouldn't have come here to listen to me preach today. And I'll tell you how bad you are. You are so bad that if I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't have wasted my time coming. That's how bad you are and that's how bad I am. So maybe something good will happen to you today. <laughs> you ought to have the same opinion of yourself that Paul had of himself. If scripture is to be believed, you know what you are? You're the chiefest of sinners. And understanding that gives you a predilection of your present. To wit, yet, even though that's what an utter, malevolent, gutter pup I was, Paul says, when I received the very righteousness of God through, look at it, verse 15, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, very everlasting God in turn put the same gospel that saved me. Now, here's what he can't believe. And he can't believe it because he's comparing it to his horrendous past, the very gospel that saved me, he then put in my trust. Now from a human perspective, we would say, 
that Paul was the most unlikely candidate to be the divine vessel of becoming the apostle to the Gentile church. Why would he do it, of all people? This guy was murdering Christians. He gets saved. He, get dis- he gets discipled by some rando, right? He fasts for three days. Oh, there's a long fast. And now he's, what, we're supposed to, he killed my grandson, and I'm going to let him preach to me? He physically beat my daughter. And now what, he's the, the pattern for my life? you got to be kidding me. The most unlikely candidate to be the apostle to the Gentile church is the apostle Paul. And listen, that fact is not lost on him. And it should be as stupefying to you that you should be called not just a son of God, but an ambassador for heaven and a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should be the pattern of your life. You see, when we can understand that Paul's life was ordained of God to be a pattern for ours, then we intrinsically apprehend two key factors for securing a glorious entrance into God's kingdom and glory. A, everyone that is saved, at least in some capacity, is expected to fulfill the Great Commission and is therefore, by extension, a missionary. Everybody. Did you hear that? B, you don't get to use your past and your weaknesses to not satiate that desire which God has for your life. To me, experientially in my walk with God, this, may, this is not some doctrinal attestation, but, but in my experiential walk with God, to me, the most amazing thing about God's dealing with me is this. That God is not concerned. If I were God, I would not be this way. God is not concerned with where you have been. He only cares about where you're going. And that, to me, is one of the most amazing things about God. Forgetting those things which are behind. Press forward to the things that are before. That's the God of the Bible. That is amazing grace. And so Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. I had a hard time saying that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. He's going to extrapolate this idea. And he's going to say this. Two key words, allowed and trust. Watch it. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. So when you have a right perspective of your past, you have a right comprehension of your present. And that sets you on a determined future. Paul said, I was both allowed. See, he's trying to express the fact that being able to give people the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved you from your wicked past is an incredible responsibility. It's an incredible privilege. Look, we're allowed to do it. 
We are allowed to share the gospel. We are allowed to minister to other people. We are allowed to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. It is an unspeakable, it's not a burden. It's not an encumbrance. It's not this thing, oh, shucks, they're going to talk about evangelizing my neighbor again. Or, you know, is anyone going to come for, you know, here am I. Here am who? No one's raising their hand. Here is him. Send him. That, that doesn't make for good preaching. Right? It's just, mm, that's kind of awkward. Are we actually going to do this again? Yeah, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep doing it because Paul is the pattern for every one of our lives, and he would not let this go. And he said that being able to do that is an incredible privilege. You're allowed to do it, and yet at the same time, it's an incredible responsibility because you've also been put in trust with it. You are allowed and have been put in trust with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved you. And so Paul says, because I obtained this mercy, God did something amazing. He did something unspeakable. He counted me, the chiefest of sinners. You see, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? He counted me, the chiefest of sinners, listen to the word, worthy, and enabled me for ministry, verse 12 of our text. In fact, he says that God put me in the ministry himself. You. Not pastors, not missionaries, not the super spiritual, not special people. You were placed in ministry at salvation by God himself. You know what Laodicea is? It is the absolute and utter refusal to acknowledge that fact. That's what Laodicea is. And please note, the redundancy is intentional, but friends, it's not a pattern for pastors, our missionaries, our some folk. Paul said that's a pattern for everyone who has ever been saved since I was saved, and if you're not going to agree with God about this incontrefutable fact of Holy Writ, now, at this moment, if you will not acquiesce to this truth as I am speaking in this nanosecond of time, as this conference begins, friend, you will miss, I promise you, you will miss what God wants to do with you and in you by His grace this week. You will frustrate the grace of God. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you don't think that's possible, but Calvinists are stupid and they don't understand the Bible. <laughs> you will frustrate the grace of God. And that brings us to the future. What will your future be? Because I believe that if Paul's life was intended to be a pattern for the life of everyone in this room this morning who names the name of Jesus Christ, then your future will look like Paul's life post-conversion, won't it? And this, as they say, is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? You see, it's fun to have a missions conference when the emphasis is on someone else leaving their home and leaving their country 
and leaving their culture and language and job and parents and uprooting their wife and their kids are when the emphasis is on coming alongside someone else who has been doing that for a long time in another country and, and committing to financially supporting them. Now, by the way, there's not anything wrong with that. RBTW employing the term missionary to describe people who do that. However, it just so happens that this year's conference is different. This year's conference was explained to me in very specific terms, framed in a very specific way by Jeff to me last week. And that's how I know that this conference is going to be different. Because this conference, I have been tasked, and the other speakers have been tasked, with presenting the totality, the encapsulation, of what it is that we call missions. This year's conference is about the full scope of the Great Commission. It's about the inconvenient Laodicean truth that there was once a man named Saul. He was an evil man, and yet he was moral. He was a doctrinally incorrect man who defended right doctrine. He was an enigma, wrapped in a riddle. He was the star student of Gamaliel. And yet he was called the apostle to the Gentiles and became the divine instrument for the transition of the apostolic age to its present doctrinally matured state. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he claimed to have ministered with all long-suffering and doctrine and love. He said he sacrificed his liberty for the good of weaker saints, that he could be content in any state, that he suffered the loss of all things to win Christ, that he esteemed this world as bowel movements, that he wept in tears over other saints living in sin, that he welcomed suffering as it brought him closer to God, that he was crucified with Christ, that he beat his body in subjection to holiness, that he owed every lost person he knew the debt of the gospel, that he had been miraculously placed and enabled to win the lost and make disciples, thus in obedience to the Great Commission, he moved all over the earth, reckoning himself to be a stranger and pilgrim in this wicked, worthless world. And while awaiting execution in Mamertine prison, he exclaimed that he had fought a good fight, that he had finished the course, that he had kept the faith. And henceforth there was laid up for him a crown that fadeth not away. Thus to him death was gain. And that that is supposed to be precisely what your life looks like. So there's a problem, isn't there? To quote the great theologian, the biblical life, the Christian life, has a lot more to do than church work and football. Right? Now what we do is we call this the pattern for the life of a missionary. We like to say that. And though in a sense I suppose I would have to agree, allow me to be so bold as to advance the notion that doing so rather gets us off the hook, doesn't it? 
It allows us to turn our eyes from and stop our ears to the fact that in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul said it was the pattern for the life of anyone who has believed on the name of the Son of God to everlasting life. So brothers and sisters, call it a missions conference if you wish. It is. Say that Kale decided to become a missionary. Say that. He did. But understand, from Paul's perspective, any missions conference is a Christian life conference. And any missionary is simply just being a Christian. So well, what, well, what's so special about Kale? Nothing. Have you met this man? <laughs> There's nothing special about him. His wife, that's special. That's it. There's one bullet point there. And he'll tell you. He's just the, he's just the son of a cucumber farmer. He's just a kid from T County with a Nickelodeon cartoon on his leg. <laughs> it's a true story. Well, what, what dirt does he have on Jeff? How did he get in to the inner circle? Well, I'll tell you what the T County kid did with the Nickelodeon cartoon tattooed on his leg. What is up with you guys and tattoos? I'm not even going to get into it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what he did. He believed what the Word of God said about his salvation, and he took it to its logical conclusion. That's what he did. Seeing no other way that he could live his life. And it's an amazing thing about Cale because he is worthy. And because he has submitted to the training of a local New Testament church, which is the divine instrument of this age for equipping saints, he is now also able, and that is self-evident in his speech and in his manner of life. He is a radically different kid than the first time I met him at a camp in Michigan, giving names to different moves that he would give going down a water slide. <laughs> what the heck? This is the cream of the crop <laughs> down at FBC? Like, I, is this a joke? Am I being, am I being punked? And yet he is intelligent and he is articulate and he loves the Lord and he understands people and he knows how they work and he knows what needs to be done and he's willing to do it. Why? I'll tell you why. Because when he committed his life to Christ, God enabled him. That's why. And he would do that with anybody. Anybody. Kale, in what is intended to be an indirect reference to the aforementioned 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, I am not your dad, and I am not your pastor, and I think you know that, and I think everybody else does too. 
If it turns out that I am one of those, well, we've got some very interesting discussions to have. But I am not your dad and I am not your pastor. So please don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean to be condescending to you. You are my peer in ministry, and I really do believe that. That's what ordination is all about, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. But I don't need to tell you that in doing this, you are now a pattern for this church, as Paul is a pattern for the body of Christ. And that is an unspeakable responsibility. And it is an incredible privilege. Kale and Brooke, the Lord willing, will soon be living across the Atlantic within and among a fiercely stubborn and arrogant people who apparently in being male and becoming older than 24 completely prevents you from being able to tell the truth about anything. Trust me, I know these people. It is an incredibly bizarre culture. It is an incredibly strange group of people that are very loving and very tender and very loyal, and yet at the same time, they are extremely stubborn. They can be very difficult to work with, and they speak the third most complex language on earth. And to put it into its simplest terms, Kale and Brooke will be living in and among these people soon, the Lord willing, for one reason. Like Paul, they found themselves in Christ, which gave them a perspective of their past, which shaped a predilection of their present. Incumbent with such a state comes the self-imposed interrogation, what is our life? That's what they ask themselves. What is our life? And when they ask themselves that question, they let the Bible answer it instead of the flesh. And five will get you ten. Here is where that will end you. In the uttermost parts of the earth. And so what was once Paul's future post-Damascus has now become their future. So how about you? What is your life? What say ye? Any critically thinking, sentient, sane human grapples with that question. Christians should be able to answer this with peace because they have an absolute objective standard by which they can know the answer to such a question with certainty. Do you know why Paul could say that his life was a pattern for every saint? Because God gets to define what our life is. We don't. Brothers and sisters, that's what salvation is. Maybe not in respect to what it is dynamically, but certainly in reference to what it does. That's what salvation does. James 4, 14, Whereas ye know uh, not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? Well, what does the Bible say it is? It's a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanisheth away. And in the eternal scheme of things, although it doesn't seem like it when you're going through it, if a family member gets sick, or you get ringing in your ears, that won't go away, and if, if you have problems in the flesh and problems in this life, you know what the truth is? It doesn't matter. In light of eternity, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you understand that you are here for a very short period of time, and you have a very small window of opportunity to glorify God on earth while there is still a chance. 
That's what matters. Your life is a vapor. Job chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about, yet thou dost destroy me. Remember, I beseech thee, that thou hast made me as the clay, and wilt thou bring me into dust again? Hast thou not poured me out as milk, and curdled me like cheese? Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh, and hast fenced me with bones and sinews. Thou hast granted me life and favor, and thy visitation hath preserved my spirit. And these things hast thou hid in thine heart. I know that this is with thee. You know what he said? The real me is actually encased inside of my flesh that is curdling like cheese, that is decaying, that is spoiling, that is getting old. It's doing it very quickly. And all I can say is this, that the time that I have in this flesh, this life has been granted to me by God. That's what your life is. It doesn't last very long, and it was given to you as a gift from God. It's not even your own life. Matthew chapter 16 and verses 24 through 27 says that your life, if you find it, you'll lose it. And if you lose your life, you'll find it. Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 says this, that your life doesn't consist in the abundance of things which you possess. Folks, but that's not how we live our lives. Because as Laodicean Christians, the truth of the matter is this. The overwhelming majority of us simply refuse on a practical level to allow any verity of Scripture, much less Paul's life, to be a pattern for how we think and move and be and act in this vaporous time while we curdle like cheese under the sun though it has been granted to us by God so that we could lose it to find it. We will not allow that to be the reality, the practical dynamic of our lives. If you are a Bible believer, then your life is no more or less than what the Bible says it is, and it says that you are dead and hid in Christ, and that as you are formed in Him and He in you, you will be what? You will be fishers of men. That's what Jesus promised his disciples would be the inevitable result of following him. Thus, your life is to be patterned after Christ and holiness, and it is to be patterned after Paul in ministry, and you cannot find... Now, I'm not talking about heretical sects. I'm not talking about people who name the name of Christ. You cannot find in America one Christian in a thousand that is doctrinally correct and has actually laid hold on salvation that can even remember a time in their recent past where not that they have led someone to Christ, that they have attempted to. So what would be the converse logic of that? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I am not a fisher of men, ergo... What? And we're going to have a missions conference.
though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he had whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Who's saying that? Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews, is touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Hear that? Blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted what? Loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am persuaded of Christ Jesus, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul grew up in such a manner, listen friends, that he was proud to be a Hebrew. Somehow, through influences that I suppose we could all make good guesses at, he decided at a very young age that he was going to be one of the greatest Jews in history and set out to attain such a lofty goal with more determination and ardency than Rudy Rudiger in his quest to play for Notre Dame. Before Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, this was his life. And listen, listen friends, as an unsaved man whose goal in life was to establish his own righteousness as blameless before God. That was his goal. He didn't need anybody to pay him to do the job. He didn't need accountability structures. He was utterly consumed with the idea to the extent that when a bunch of sell-out Jews who weren't good enough to get into rabbinical school started following a hard-preaching, heretical sectarian carpenter from Nazareth and telling everyone that the Hebrews' special religion given to Moses on the mount by very God wasn't enough that to this brilliant and learned and zealous young man it was self-evident that they and all those who believed them deserved death. And unlike some pope or some imam or some cult leader, he didn't ask anyone else to do the dirty work. He volunteered. That's the spiritual road in life that Paul was traveling down when he was on the terrestrial road of Damascus. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Acts 9 opens with Paul doing the initiating. Now please listen. Paul's doing the initiating. No one is asking him to do anything. He proactively goes to, Jer to Jerusalem Temple Authority. He proactively asks 
for the letters to slaughter the church. He is the one that decided to put Christianity to an end in its very infancy. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, Saul of Tarsus was what they call a true believer. That is, until he had an, an encounter with the resurrected Lord, which threw him to the ground and blinded them, him so that he could not see, eat, or even drink. For how many days? For three days. Because when you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, and you really see him as the one who rose from the dead, it should have the effect of your realization that before that very moment, whatever it is you had been doing, whether or not it had been deemed by man to be good or bad, profitable or unprofitable, noble or ignoble, you had been wasting your life. That any pursuit, however respectable, or traditional, or culture-reinforcing, or altruistic, or philanthropic, or even religious, if it is an identity in the flesh or of this world, it is a wasted life. It's a life of no light and no eternal purpose and no spiritual nourishment and no lordship to Jesus Christ. It's a wasted life that to be consistent with the very message of the gospel itself must be put to death and be buried and be raised in newness of life just as Saul was blind and unnourished for three days only to be given a new name and a new purpose when he arose. That name was Paul and that purpose was the Great Commission. And do you know what you did not have to convince Paul of from the day that he was saved? Listen, I'm not talking about he had to go to five different youth camps before he stopped playing tonsil hockey with his unsaved girlfriend. I myself was the Gordy Howe of tonsil hockey after my salvation. Why? Because I didn't understand something. There are things that I did not get. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that he, he finally, at the age of 32, realized that if I get a level 157 armor in my first-person shooter game, that I really haven't accomplished anything as it turns out. That translates into no real value. I'm just a nerd in my mom's basement. He, he didn't say, I, I, well, after I went to college and, and I joined a frat and I lived that life and then I realized that, oh, it's true, that really doesn't bring happiness, maybe I should start, that's not what happened to him. That's what happened to us because we're Laodiceans. We're tonsil hockey, drinking, partying, game-playing Laodiceans. And so it takes us to where we're 57 to realize that God is worth being right with. But that's only because we don't believe that the Apostle Paul should be the pattern for our life. Because from the day that Paul was saved, 
You didn't have to convince him that getting the job done demanded initiative and study and moral purity and the willingness to separate yourself from the pack and leave town and travel down a strange road and make people uncomfortable. You didn't have to do that because if that's what it took to be a true believer for a wasted life, then how and why would living a life for the glory of God require less? Do you know what Paul would later write in Romans? He would allege that the fact of the resurrected Lord meant that the righteousness of the law had come to an end. For a man who had based his entire meaning and purpose and identity and self-contextualization on the righteousness of the law, that meant the end of his life. And now, brothers and sisters, I have to ask you, you know it's coming. If Paul's life is truly to be the pattern for every one of us who is saved, is that what the resurrected Lord means for you? Or does it mean something else? And now, right now, now it's a missions conference. What is life? What is death? What is missions? Well, fortunately for us, God didn't leave us to guess, did he? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Paul wrote what death is for a Christian. You know what death is? What, what, when he was writing to, first, to, uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 about widows, what did he say death was? that widow that lives in pleasure. She's dead while she liveth. I don't even know what a Laodicean is supposed to do with that verse. I don't know what an American is supposed to do with that verse. Maybe the best reason to leave America and be a missionary is so the day you land, that might be the first day that you actually can live the Christian life. Maybe America is so wicked and so depraved and so deceived. Maybe, and I've had this thought, maybe, just maybe, you can't even live in this country and fulfill the Christian life. I don't really believe that. But I kind of do. Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes this dynamic, and he says, starting in verse 16, now notice 16 through 19, he's going to talk about giving up his old life, his past condition. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, he knows that. Why? Because he tried that. But by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ a minister of sin? God forbid. 
For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. He's describing now the past of Christians who got saved, not unsaved people. And there are a lot of Christians that have to look back at their saved life and realize they didn't give it to God. And so that understanding causes a present predilection. Verse 19, for I, uh, for, uh, for though I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and this life that I now live in the present. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then look what he says in verse 21. Look at it. Because this is now going to be his future. I do not frustrate the grace of God. God gave me his grace for more than the reason of moving to a Disney world for adults in outer space when I die. That frustrates the grace of God. I'm supposed to do something with the grace that I was given. Paul said, whatever I had invested in my old life and whatever the cost is going forward, I have to be a success. It's just that. After having had a vision of the resurrected Lord, I now have a new definition of success. There's only one definition for success for somebody who has seen the resurrected Lord. You know what it is? It's finding the will of God for your life and doing it. That's it. That's success. God gave us his word and the pattern of Paul's life so that you would know specifically and emphatically what the will of God for your life is and that you would know it without equivocation. And so what did Christ do with the disciples? He brought them up to Calvary so they could watch him die. Paul didn't have that advantage. So when Paul saw the resurrected Lord, he got a vision. And you know what his vision was? It was going back to Calvary and looking at Christ on a cross and saying, that's it. I finally found my purpose. My purpose is to die on that cross and live a whole new life. His purpose was death. Paul couldn't fulfill the law. Christ had done that on the cross. So God gave him something else to fulfill. The Great Commission. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 21, and we're getting ready to close this down. <clears throat> Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. That's his new goal. For we must all appear. Uh-oh, here it comes. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that we may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. We're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which should live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth we know him no more. Therefore, for that reason, for this reason, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God. And, and, and how do we contextualize that? Here's how. How do you a new creature? How do you validate that? This is how. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and look, has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We are in the ministry, and as we fulfill the ministry, we fulfill something that is conscience-appeasing about the fact that we are going to give an account of our salvation at the judgment seat of Christ. And that is all based on your present reality and your future position of being in the ministry of reconciliation. Because God puts you there. Though you were the chiefest of sinners, you are worthy. And you have been enabled. And you have an expectation incumbent upon your salvation. And that you are supposed to have the attitude with the people who live next to you and across the street and, 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 at, the, and at the grocery store and at school and at work and wherever it is you go in this world, you are supposed to have the attitude that God has allowed you to have been put in trust with the gospel for those people. And folks, if you can't preach that message convincingly to a group of people who name the name of Christ and hold doctrinal truth, well, then you can't have a missions conference. You can't do it. Missions conferences aren't about Kale and Cezanne. They're about you. The question of missions is simply this. When does your eternal life begin? For a Laodicean, eternal life begins the moment that they die. For Paul, eternal life began the moment that he got saved. So get busy living or get busy dying. Because I feel I must reiterate this point before I close. You don't always have to go to DEFCON 1. I get that. But folks, 
when you're talking about the whole scope of missions, it's DEFCON 1. Do you understand what this conference is about? It's not about one facet of missions, not this year. This year, it's about the entire scope of the Great Commission and the grand sweep of its implications on the body of Christ. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 9, For I think that God hath set forth us apostles last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels and to men. There it is. The angels of light, the demons of darkness, the unsaved world. We're a spectacle unto them in how we show a pattern of how people should be dead but alive. To the point that we are what? Verse 10. Fools. It's a funny thing. When's the last time you made a fool out of yourself for God? For God. For God. You see, we're too respectable to be... Now understand, you'll make a fool out of yourself for a coach. You'll make a fool out of yourself for playing time. You'll make a fool out of yourself for scholarship. You'll make a fool out of yourself for a boy or a girl. You'll make a fool out of yourself for friends and for popularity. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, you're too respectable for that, aren't you? When's the last time you made a fool out of yourself for God? For the cause of the gospel. When's the last time you did that? But ye are wise in Christ, we are weak, but ye are strong, ye are honorable, but we are despised. It's the godly ones that are always looking like idiots. Paul says, that's not fair. That's going to change someday. At the judgment seat of Christ, the ungodly Christians are going to look like the idiots. Worm's going to turn. Payday someday. For good or for bad. Saved or unsaved. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And you, know, you know what that reminds me of? Reminds me of a single lady moving to Africa and not even knowing if someone who's going to meet her at, at, on the runway. In labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat, we are made as the, listen now, as the filth of this world, and are the offscurring of all things unto this day. Sounds like a Joel Osteen book, doesn't it? <laughs> I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you, for though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, what? Be followers of who? Of Christ? You guys have a lot of people who will teach you the Bible. Who's teaching you how to be the offscreen of the world. Paul said, you're not going to have many people come and teach you that, so you're going to have to listen to me. Follow me. I'll take you right on to the judgment seat of Christ. Right on into a glorious entrance. But you're going to have to live the life of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 to get there because that inconvenient truth of the Laodicean age is that that is supposed to be the pattern of your life. And if you have found a way to circumvent that and still name the name of Christ, you, friend, are a fraud.
Paul said, this is what receiving life eternal from the blessed gospel of the glorious God meant for me. My life had been a waste. However, one day I woke up in the power of the resurrection and realizing eternal life had already begun. From that day, my entire identity was Jesus and the total characterization of my activity was missions. So God said, Paul, because this is your testimony, I want you to do something for me. I want you to tell the church to be followers of you. Because Paul's different from Christ in this respect. Jesus Christ was never the chiefest of sinners. If Paul's our example, then truly, we have no excuse. And that's why a guy named Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you'll learn about him soon enough. In your series in 1 Corinthians, a guy named Stephanus, not a deacon, not a pastor, not an apostle. He's just the first dude. He and his family, were the, they were the first people to be saved in that area when Paul moved to Corinth. And so when they left, Paul gets ready to leave. And you know what he says? You guys need to follow Stephanus. Wait, he's not even a, what, what do you mean? He's, he's not a pastor. No, he's not a pastor. You know what he has done, though? Because everybody's addicted to something, aren't they? Boy, it's those addictions that keep us from serving God, isn't it? As long as you're going to be addicted to something, Stephanus said, I'm going to be addicted to the ministry of the saints. And that guy didn't need an office or a title because that was the life of Paul. And so Paul said, when I leave, you follow that guy. Because anybody and everybody who names the name of Christ is expected to live the life of Paul. And brothers and sisters, can I tell you what I find so ironic? The people who have realized that, listen, that they're off-scurring and they're scum and they've wasted their life and they have tattoos on their calves that they can't take away. but they realized the one thing they needed to realize. And they're so happy. And everybody else is just so stinking miserable. And it blows my mind that they can't see it. They're so, they're so full of joy. It's almost funny. The Bible has so many negative things to say about man and his life. And so, do you know what modern preachers do? They don't preach the Bible because they know it's so filled with negative things. So God says, preach the word. Okay, you know, Bible college student. Preach the word, that'll be fun. People will love me. Um, no, not when you start preaching the word because people don't love to hear what the Bible has to say about them. They like to hear what modern preachers say about them. They don't like to hear what the Bible has to say about them. And here's how I know that the modern preacher doesn't love God. Because people who love God are blessed by the negative stuff in the Bible. But folks, I can't figure it out. 
You're a worm, you're trash, you're like grass, you're curdled cheese, you're a dog, you drink your own vomit. And I'm like, man, I love this book. <laughs> that, it, it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. And when people get offended, i got to be honest with you, I've gotten to the place lately, I, when they walk out mad, I know they're never coming back again. And there they go. Don't let the door hit you where the Lord split you. <laughs> and and, and, and you, you know they're not coming back. And when they leave, you look at your sermon and you go, oh, well, you know, I kind of agree with them. <laughs> I wouldn't put up with that either. And, 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 and yet Psalm 119 says, those who love the law, none of it will offend them. There's nothing negative in the Bible you can say to somebody who loves the Bible and they're going to get, they'll love you for it. They're weird. Hey man, you are the scum of the, if I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't waste my time talking to you. Man, I really like that guy. <laughs> that's, that, that's, you know what that is? That's peculiar, isn't it? So you preach the word. And it goes like this. You're a liar. You hate good. Your deeds are evil. You fall short. You're blind. Your desires and pursuits in life are a waste. And some folks who call themselves Christians get mad at that. They really do. They really do get mad. And they get offended and they leave the church. And other ones hear the same message and they amen. And they smile and they cry and they furiously take notes. And they almost skip out to the parking lot whistling, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Same message, man. Same message. Why? Because the pattern of Paul's life is the prerequisite for joy. And what is joy? And what's the pattern? This is it. The things that I counted gain. It's dung. And losing my life for the cause of the never dying souls of man is my resurrected life. which gives me a desire for knowing Jesus through suffering and being made, formable, uh, being made conformable unto his death. Listen, what a wonderful revelation. That was a revelation that allowed him to lay hold on real joy. Real joy, this is it. The ability in Christ to forget all the things that are behind and still press forward to the things that are before, and still winning the prize of crowns for Christ's glory, knowing that the God you serve isn't interested in where you've been, he's interested in where you're going. The ability to let go of the past and put it in your rear view and look forward to a future with Jesus Christ and the saints of God, both here and in the hereafter, pressing towards the prize, brothers and sisters, that is the pattern for our life. It's Paul's life. It's Kale's. It's Brooks. It's Jeff's. It's Matt's. It's Troy's. 
That's why I love them. That's why I need them. But guess what, man? It's your pattern too. And people need you to follow it also. You must see this. Laying hold on salvation and it not affecting your goals and pursuits and dreams and where you live and why you live and how you live and what you do and say and who you do and say it with and to is a waste. It's dung. It's wood. It's hay. It's stubble. All that we sorry hypnotize, slumbering, wallowing, American, Laodiceans would but anoint our eyes with eye salve that we might see that we might behold what can be seen with the eyes that have seen the resurrected Lord, that we might see our lives now the way we will at the judgment seat of Christ, purchasing gold for the fire, that we might see the fields are widened to harvest, and that the gold for the fire is buried in the mission fields of the world, that we might see the value of one never-dying soul of man, that one of them, one of them being converted, causes every angel in heaven to rejoice. And that for that reason alone, they are worth the leaving of the ninety and nine. For the one, that's worth your whole life. Can you leave the ninety and nine for that one who, if not for you, won't hear? that we might see that pursuing Christ in this world deserves at least as much determination and ardency as a young Hebrew child pursuing the life of becoming an ecclesiastical celebrity or as it were, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Friends, I submit to you this morning that the only way that you can be happy and the only people in this life who are truly happy are the saints in Christ who realize that and consequently are living their life walking on the king's highway. By way of encapsulation, do you know what Paul realized? Unlike many, dare I say most, American Christians today will before it's too late. Paul understood that the resurrected Lord deserves more than doctrinal positions and religious conformity. As a matter of fact, that kind of life, as it turns out, is against God, not for Him. Rather, the resurrected Lord deserves, yea, it demands a resurrected life. And so you would know it when you see it, and at long last live it. The resurrected life looks like Paul's life. What a wonderful revelation for a man or a woman to have, especially when they see it young. Before it's too late. Before you wake up and you realize that at 55, missions is a young man's game. Before you're rattling out your last ghost-like breath, begging some unsaved doctor for technology that will keep you alive for two more days, and you go out like a surf to this world system, only to wake up in glory and realize you wasted your life. 
or even worse, even worse, the people who realize so late that there is a resurrected Lord that is worth living for that they wake up in the very pit of hell. And so for this reason, Paul said in Romans 1, I owe a debt to every unsaved person I know, and the debt that I owe them is the gospel. I owe a debt, and Paul makes reference to it. I owe a debt because David cried out in despair in Psalm 142. I've had people look out for my goodness. I've had people look out for my welfare. I've had people put food on my table. I've had people encourage me and counsel me. I've had people do good things for me my whole life. I've had people take care of my health. I've had people take care of all of the worldly things that I could possibly have. And I've had people attend to that my whole life. But when he really gets in trouble and the only one who can help him is God, you know what he says? He says, no man cared for my soul. No man cared for my soul. And folks, the vision of a missionary before it's too late is the vision of a Christian who realizes that the people all around him are going to be falling into a pit of hell. And as they're crying out, though you lived next to them, though you lived across the street from them, though you went to school with them, though you were their Facebook friend, though you ate lunch with them, though you worked with them, though you went to conferences with them, though you knew them, though they were your relatives, they will be able to say this, when they're going, when they're expiring, when they're falling, when they're plunging into the lake, no man cared for my soul. No man cared for my soul. And we called ourselves Christians. You know what Paul was? We call him a missionary. But he never called himself that, did he? Paul called it being in Christ. I wonder, after this missions conference, what will you call it? 